could I ask you to love me when I knew you loved Rebecca still? Whenever you touched me, I, I knew you were comparing me with Rebecca. What is the mystery of Rebecca? What dread secret is hidden within the silent walls of Manderley? Not only in this room, it's in all the rooms in the house. I can almost hear it now. Do you think the dead come back and watch the living? Welcome to a new episode of Foreign Correspondence Deeper into Hitchcock Podcast. Uh, my name is Michał Leszczyk and I'm joined as always by my co-host Sebastian Smolinski. Hello. We are um, uh, proceeding with our project of a podcast dedicated to the work of Alfred Hitchcock that we try to analyze from Eastern European perspective. Uh, and we are going steadily proceeding through the filmography of uh, Alfred Hitchcock. And now we arrive at a very exciting moment, as exciting as truly discovering a new world. Uh, Hitchcock is discovering America with uh, Rebecca, his first American Hollywood production, a film that actually won the Best Picture Oscar for the year 1940, so uh, the only Hitchcock uh, film that that managed to accomplish that feat. And today uh, we are accomplishing another feat by inviting a wonderful guest. Our guest today will be a Hitchcock scholar and also a Rebecca scholar, Professor Patricia White, who is a professor of, professor of film and media studies at Swarthorn College in the US. She wrote many books, including Women's Cinema, World Cinema, Projecting Contemporary Feminisms, and Uninvited, Classical Hollywood Cinema and Lesbian Representability. And recently, actually very recently, she published a brand new study, a short book in the BFI classic series entirely devoted to Rebecca. So we are extremely honored that Professor Patricia White will be joining us on this podcast. And I can sense that uh, Sebastian is also very excited about that because we also both liked Rebecca. Yes, we we love Rebecca and we love coming back to Manderley as Professor Patricia White also likes. So I'm very happy we have such a wonderful guest today. Absolutely, and uh, we are looking forward to discussing many aspects of Rebecca. Of course, I guess today there are no true Eastern European tropes, apart from Franz Waxman, who wrote music for Rebecca and who was born in Chorzów, near my hometown of Tronskie Góry. But apart from that, we are deeply in the Gothic imagination. That's right. And there is also a Selznick memo and Selznick writes that if the war will come to America and to UK, they will be in a big pickle, almost as big as Poland. I mean, not as big, he writes, but almost as big as Poland. So that's the Polish connection, of course. And we can tell you as Poles that that was quite a pickle. (laughs) the war. Well, anyhow, it is a great pleasure for us to welcome uh, the wonderful Hitchcock scholar, uh, Professor Patricia White. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. We are very honored and we are very thrilled since uh, it's very recently that uh, your book on Rebecca, which actually we own in duplicate, uh, was published by the British Film Institute and we were very thrilled to um, to read it. And um, we wanted to revisit this uh, strangely fascinating film, which proves still after all those years to be provocative problematic in some ways, but also uh, endlessly, endlessly fascinating. Um, And uh, we would like to start just by putting Rebecca in the context of this very, very special moment, both historically and biographically. Uh, Hitchcock 
goes to America and he goes to America at a very special time, a very troubled time. And also he starts cooperating with a very special producer. And uh, if we can just start by saying what it meant for Hitchcock to start working with David Oselznik at this particular moment in time. Yes, well, thank you um, for the question and for hosting me. I am thrilled to be talking about Hitchcock's first American film. And he um, found out that he, as much as he was interested in the American studio system um, as an opportunity to, you know, uh, expand his reach, to have higher production values, to work with professionals across the board, um, to work with really strong actors, that it also meant working with um, a very opinionated, very hands-on producer. So in the 30s, Selznick um, had established uh, Selznick International Pictures, had sort of taken his formula of uh, luxury filmmaking um, to his own independent production company and um, continued to succeed and to make uh, literary adaptations. And of course, the most um, spectacular of those was Gone with the Wind, which was um, still underway when uh, Hitchcock uh, signed with Selznick, when Hitchcock made the uh, move across the Atlantic, um, and as Rebecca was getting set up and written and even uh, shot. So it was, it was a time of preoccupation for Selznick, which might have been good because he might have interfered even more with, <laughs> with Hitchcock um, getting started. So Selznick, um, you know, totally knew that he was getting someone um, of outsized uh, talent. Um, he knew he was getting somebody who could uh, sort of be a director producer and make his own um, work happen kind of from start to finish like Selznick himself liked to do, but they were extremely different in the ways they approached um, this particular material and filmmaking in general. So, um, you know, they started their partnership with this film and it would be kind of stormy throughout, but um, I think Rebecca turned out probably the better for having both of them, um, uh, you know, put their best into it along with, of course, all the other collaborators that Hitchcock was able to kind of hook up with in the US. I think one of the treasures of your book is that you are trying to, and very successfully, I would say, to decenter Hitchcock as a, you know, as a figure, which is, of course, very refreshing. We started with this, you know, famous duo, right? Hitchcock sells Nick, uh, almost like Aster and Rogers, as the song went, right? One of the songs from the era. And you are showing and you're arguing that Rebecca actually was a, let's say, an artistic child of, of, of uh, several great women, right? And influential women that were certainly in the background and that we are now only trying to reclaim their influence on Hitchcock. Was that one of the, let's say, reasons or one of the appeals that convinced you you want to write about Rebecca, among other uh, films? I know it's always a uh, probably interesting process when they ask you to contribute to BFI uh, series and uh, you write that it was one of your dreams. So what was the reason? Did you choose it? Did somebody offer you to write about Rebecca? No, in fact, I brought it to the BFI and they were, uh, they, you know, it's a wonderful series of small books that um, initially 
was um, based on a list um, on a, a sort of 360 degree or 365 maybe uh, titles that were you know um, essential and they were going to cycle through them. Um, but at the time um, that I proposed the book, they were uh, the BFI publishing had kind of shut down there and was using um, other publishers and this and this series was in transition. So I was trying to get Rebecca made <laughs> or written for a couple of years while, while they set up with Bloomsbury. Um, and Rebecca wasn't on the list. Uh, one of the reasons was that there had already been some very strong um, Hitchcock uh, volumes in the series. Um, so, you know, Camille Paglia's On the Birds for one. Um, and I felt very strongly that um, Rebecca needed to be in any debates about sort of canonicity um, because it clearly, you know, it's it's not an overlooked film by any means. It won the Oscar. It's had, you know, um, continual uh, rotation. Um, at, you know, it was re being re-released by Selznick himself. I mean, it was it was um, lucrative. It was on television a lot. It, it, it's always been in view, but because it's an adaptation of an enormously popular novel by Daphne du Maurier, it's always been a kind of odd Hitchcock out um, in the sense that he himself famously kind of dis disowned it <laughs> um, in his in his uh, interviews with uh, Francois Truffaut, um, saying it's not a Hitchcock picture, really. And I think he meant the material. Uh, he goes on to say it was, you know, it was it was women's literature, it was sentimental, it was static, it was, um, and I think even a little bit, um, the sort of gothicness of it was a little, um, the word that pops into my mind, uncanny to Hitchcock. There was something about that that he didn't quite like. Um, he loved, the, you know, he loves the sort of suspense of it. It's a perfect um, suspense structure for him. But he, I don't think that the, it's not only the, um, the sort of, uh, this is a female genre, the female gothic, but something about the kind of atmosphericness of it, I think was, was uh, not so um, attractive to him. But he did jump on it as an opportunity to um, sign with Selznick. Um, he was looking at the material just as Selznick was as they were negotiating their deal. So it was a it was kind of a way of, of, um, of putting a team together that you know would, would succeed artistically and uh, at the box office um, by acquiring Rebecca and getting it um, on the slate as, as their first film together. Um, but I was really attracted to it because of that disavowal on Hitchcock's part, because he, there was something about its sort of feminine qualities that he wanted to put some distance between himself and, um, when at the same time, he clearly loves having these kind of imperiled female heroines. Um, often they're a little more spunky than the one in Rebecca <laughs> um, or a little more, you know, um, I, I want to say curious, but I think that I, the heroine and narrator of Rebecca is, is quite curious, but she's also proceeds with enormous caution. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I, I insisted that this film would be a great addition um, because of the Hitchcock um, Selznick collaboration and um, 
because it would allow us to talk about the Hollywood studio system as a welcoming place for Hitchcock and his team, which included, of course, his wife, um, Alma Reville and um, Joan Harrison, and that the studio system, as much as it was um, hierarchical and included um, uh, and segregated and really only had, you know, white male professionals at, at the top of most categories, did offer opportunities for women, um, just like any big um, sort of in industry. There were women everywhere um, in uh, roles like, you know, secretaries and executive assistants and script girls and wardrobe and costume. But there were also more and more women in editing departments, women writers, and um, even in producing. So, um, so I was really interested in that angle um, on the Hitchcock Selznick team, which was like neither one of these could have floated <laughs> um, their work without um, actually collaborating with women, not just using their work, but collaborating. And, um, and that they both understood, as did Hollywood at the time, that the audience um, of women um, needed to be addressed um, in a meaningful way for something to succeed. So I liked that it's an artistic work, but also a commercial work. It's a auteurist work, and there's wonderful um, exchanges between these two sort of titanic egos, um, Hitchcock and Selznick, because you know it's all documented. Um, but that it also had these other very strong contributions. Where would you place Rebecca in terms of um, portraying, or maybe? projecting contemporary uh, womanhood in, in America in 1940s. Um, we, we know that in for 1945 there was this national survey in which women voted Rebecca as their American women's their favorite picture. And uh, when I'm thinking of the films of the 1940s, especially of the of the wartime era, uh, and we look at, uh, for example, Greer Garson as, as Mrs. Miniver, this very, you know, resilient uh, woman who is basically, you know, helping survive the war and here we have this strange frail creature i mean uh, john fontaine of course who 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 is so delicate and 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 easily traumatized in in many many ways and of course she harkens back to some gothic you know images and uh, gothic imagination as, as such but where would you place her this particular image uh, and you also mentioned it in the book but in the context of of, of wartime or 1940s uh, uh, womanhood in in america yeah that's a that's a great question i mean of course the film is made on the cusp right so that the, the novel comes out in 38 you know in the 30s is a time of enormous productivity on the part of women writers um and um it's you know released as a film in 1940, and it it has the darkness quite literally in the cinematography that would characterize 1940s filmmaking. You know, film noir um, emerges, and it has the sort of moral cloudiness and um, you know characterological uh, confusion that would characterize um, films of that era as well. Remember, the film is called Rebecca. So even though the heroine is um, is 
you know, I venture to say kind of masochistic um, and not um, assertive, as she says, dull and gauche and inexperienced and no one would gossip about her. Um, she is someone that at least David Oselsnick is on record of saying that every girl identifies with. Um, and obviously that insecurity um, is both um, sociologically bred into kind of middle-class womanhood in terms of, you know, being a, an ideal um, in terms of looks and brains, beauty and breeding, which Rebecca all has and, and that narrator does not, but also um, politically that she's, um, that the insecurity is a national insecurity, it's wartime. Um, and so I think that sort of psychologically, there's an identification possible with this heroine on, for anybody um, because of that, uh, not knowing what the future is gonna be, being compelled by um, sort of the darker aspects of the past um, and, you know, and, and not really wanting to acknowledge that um, desire um, to, uh, you know, explore other alternatives. Um, and then there's Rebecca. So do women love Rebecca? the book or do they love Rebecca, this mysterious um, figure of obsession um, that they might want to emulate, that they're attracted to. And of course, in, in my reading, there's a strong lesbian component to uh, the desire for Rebecca to, um, you know, figure out her secret, to see what she looks like, to, um, touch the things that she touched to be part of that. And so Rebecca represents, you know, consumerist desire, but she also represents a kind of female power that isn't in the novel talked about politically, but that certainly, uh, or in the film, there's no political dimension to it. But I think historically there clearly is um, a parallel uh, to breaking out of domesticity to breaking out of predicted um, gender roles and social hierarchies and to you know, deciding her own fate, which Rebecca does even to her death. So that split, I think, is very appropriate to wartime, to the 40s, um, to the um, massive social upheaval that would happen. And again, it's right on the cusp of that, so it predicts um, further films that explore these themes. I think very much the femme fatales of film noir are, you know, manifestations of Rebecca's, um, you know, the dark hair <laughs> uh, signifying um, their treacherousness. Um, and the films that were made for women who were constituting a great portion of the domestic audience in the US um, and always had, but there was a sense that now we really can throw all attempts to address, you know, their dates <laughs> to out and just, just go for the female audience with the, you know, full on weepies and a lot of the um, cycle of female gothics that would come out of Rebecca, including um, memorably Gaslight, uh, which comes to stand in for that formula. So it's a 
1930s uh, creation and a 1940s uh, sort of I don't know, bellwether. I think it's also something you, you suggest in your reading that this movie was in a way anachronistic even on the day of its release somehow because of its visual qualities, because of this Hollywood Gothic, which actually I would say puts it also quite close to, you know, universal horror cycle. Of course, production values are much quite different. The style, the sumptuous sets, uh, it's not that level in universal horrors. But, you know, this phrase Hollywood Gothic kind of sticks in my mind when I think about Rebecca, obviously, and you explore that. So in a way, this movie was very fresh, um, sexually subversive, as you write, and I, I totally agree with your, you know, with lesbian reading, which is a quite classical reading when it comes to Rebecca, but which you explore to a great detail. And thank you for this attention to detail and textures. It really makes the reading experience great. So thank you for that. So I think it's it's also something quite unique, and also it makes it impossible to uh, remake it as a film, right? It was remade several times, but you, I think you are very gentle in not discussing the 2020 uh, adaptation of Rebecca, right? Which must emphasize the agency of the heroine. So like this, this idea that we can have a heroine who doesn't really have much of an agency, maybe it appears in the second half of the film, uh, I think it's something unthinkable nowadays. And maybe that also makes the return to Manderley so fascinating. You know, of course, I think of um, 40 Shades of Grey or something like that, or Twilight. I, I think there are heroines quite like this. Like, I think that I think Bella and Twilight is the hero, the kind of descendant of the narrator of Rebecca because of her awkwardness, her lack of a clear outline of what her character is. So I do think there is a little bit of the... Um, the the kind of Oedipal drama of uh, femininity that does still compel, but you're absolutely right that if you try to make a whole film or series of films um, about that character, you better have a lot of other good stuff going on um, to, to, to put it over. So the 2020 remake of Rebecca hadn't been released yet. Um, I was speculating about how it would uh, work um, and uh, had a little bit of sort of an analysis of what I, I thought would happen in terms of intertextuality with the star persona and how they would be used. Um, and I was advised to remove it from the book because it was like, now this is about the classic. And it turned out well because uh, the film was, you know, I, I think just, pretty much terrible and um <laughs> and and i spoke with you know to my mind the the most uh authoritative rebecca scholar tanya modleski about the rebecca remake um and and she eventually uh published a very uh, fun piece about it about why um the, the formula doesn't work um in this case and i think uh the specificity of this film is both its timeliness, as your previous question indicated, like why is this anxiety so acute um, at, at this moment of the beginning of the war and the beginning of these massive changes in uh, 
gender roles and, and class and race as well and migration, everything would change. Um, and it's um, psychic um, timelessness in the sense of just patriarchy working pretty consistently to um, offer that female narrator position, that subject position, very little in the way of external um, goals. <laughs> and so there's this preoccupation with the sort of inner world, um, which is quite dominated by other women who are trapped in that same um, system. So, the, you know, that Gothic formula really does travel the centuries um, in different formations, but I can't, I do think that Rebecca can be remade um, as a TV show. It does seem to work quite well in these BBC adaptations um, because there is so much room in the story for um, other aspects of British uh, uh, class society and um, the, the, the the deliciousness of that Mrs. Danvers character um, means that we do want to see remakes of Rebecca, even though they will never touch uh, this one. Well, my fear is that, you know, the next thing uh, will be uh, uh, Rebecca as retold through, through, through Mrs. Danvers. You know, probably there will be a Ryan Murphy show called, called Danvers or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, about, about the remake, I, I, I only, I mean, it was so, so bad, but the most fascinating thing about it was how the text of the sort of public biography of Army Hammer was rewritten because of the sexual scandals afterwards and suddenly yeah. it turned out that he has dark secrets of his own so in that way that was the only point of point of interest uh, for me right and you don't have to watch the film for that yeah. <laughs> also uh, i think the for for all of us who rewatch and watch rebecca i think it's also uh, quite seductive that that the movie starts with what you call in your book the kind of this eye this the discursive eye and of course in your book and is it only my impression or you are fond of pants as a, as jokes i am also we are also very fond of pants so uh, of course uh, you use some pants like directly in your book but also the the figure of i because i think you know um, in other books for example i have uh, murray pomeran's a dream of hitchcock uh, she is she, right? You use I, which is, of course, I as a as a person, as a character, I as you as a writer, but also I as a, as a you know, I, which looks and you're, you know, you're very fluent in film theory. So I think it's also kind of an intellectual pun, if I may say so. So I think the, the challenge that I think was really enormous for you as, a, as an author and for, for anyone who talks about Rebecca, as we do now, is to try to approach the intimacy of this of this movie. And uh, was it a challenge for you? Did you think about it? Or you approached it as, a, you know, um, another kind of quasi-academic uh, work you had to do? What was the, the, let's say, the level of privacy and intimacy that you, 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 you feel was involved in the endeavor? Well, I um, had written about Rebecca before in my first book, um, Uninvited, and I talk about having watched the film as a teenager. And to me, that I, um, <laughs> in both senses, the, the sort of forming of my taste um, as, a, as a scholar um, for studying both gender and cinema and 
cinema of the past, at least was my interest at the time, classical Hollywood. Um, so I was training my eye <laughs> to understand what these worlds were like and what was so compelling about these worlds, even when they didn't have, you know, modern heroines, um, because of course that was, you know, something I also was interested in seeing. Um, so I, I feel very close to the heroine of the novel um, and the film and to also be that I even intermittently um, writing this study was extremely appealing to me so that I feel like that the BFI books and I should say that now the list has been thrown out um, with the newest iteration and there are you know um, books on all kinds of aspects of world cinema that wouldn't have made that first canonical selection. Um, but I felt that it's a space for writing in an essayistic mode, which is an eye, a public eye, um, and for um, the kind of um, film analysis um, that I'd been trained to do and the historical research that would be so pleasurable with a film like this um, because it's just so well documented. Um, so I approached it um, absolutely wanting to write in a in a maybe poetic style nothing like um the uh atmosphericness of Daphne du Maurier herself but to remember that the literary qualities of that book do infuse the film and even more than the opening and lack of closing voiceover, um, that there's a lot about the um, point of view, the I-I um, that is essential to the success of the film. And that goes back to the question we were discussing about being split between that narrating presence or that, you know, questing, looking, um, because her eye is so important her gaze is so important in the film, but is so frustrated at every turn. You know, she barely gets point, you know, reverse shots. She barely sees around, you know, she can't see around corners. She doesn't know what people want. She um, is not a good looker <laughs> in, in many senses. Um, so I thought that would be a very rewarding um, way to write about film is to explore that space between the literary and the, um, I guess, audiovisual, uh, if you will. I think it's really also for us as makers of this podcast, it's a unique moment because we tried to compare some previous novels or plays with what Hitchcock made in his British period. And, you know, it's a it's a more or less a futile um, task. Of course, you can we compared with Joseph Conrad, who was born as a, as a Polish, you know, uh, man, then started writing in English. So it's a, another uh, incredible transformation. But basically... I didn't have this pleasure of comparing the the novel and adaptation and as as you do in your book but this time I was I listened to the book actually uh there is this great audiobook which is read in an incredible way I mean is it Anna Massey that reads did you do yes, listen to yes, yes. so she plays Mrs Danvers in the TV first TV version of it that I saw as a as a young person so and you of course 
probably know her as a Hitchcock actress too. So <laughs> anyway, it's a wonderful, I love listening to Du Maurier. That's the, the only way to do it if you're an American because otherwise you don't hear the the British accent. Yeah, so so I so you you approach it as an American, right? You you don't have kind of like British connections, right? I mean, for me as as a, as a Polish uh, listener, it was also fascinating, and the 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 oral version, you know, takes you to a different world, right? And this is something that, of course, Hitchcock couldn't really, and you write about it, he couldn't really uh, have that in the film. I mean, it's translated uh, on a visual level. You write about the camera work, which uh, is doing this arabesque. Uh, moves in the in the in the cabin by the sea, so he translates that into visuals. But I I totally agree that the the spirit of of Dumouriez, although it's 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 very dated for me as a as a like this you know almost like a millennial right for me reading reading or listening to that book is a, is a unique experience, and I must say kind of countering the the other theory that I'm really happy that Hitchcock had this. Uh, kind of breaks put on him that he really had to stay more or less close to the original because I think like Rebecca the movie and Rebecca the novel they really they can go together it's a, it's a really a, a unique a unique uh, phenomenon and I also was curious by your suggestions that Dumouriez um, was kind of this butch right this uh, more of a butch i mean you in your book there is the picture of the of, of the of this writer and she looks almost like ernest hemingway right <laughs> writing i mean i was i was i was surprised by it but also mm, there's one thing that I, i i was thinking about and that you you don't address and i don't i don't think anybody pays attention to that uh, because this this movie and this novel is all about doubles right as as many hitchcock films and not only hitchcock films are about And here we have many doubles. You point to Jack Favell and Mrs. Danvers and to the actors who played them as this, you know, they, they, they introduced this campy uh, queer sensibility to the film. But I was wondering, this is the question kind of to both of you, what do you think about the relationship between uh, Max de Winter and Frank? Do you sense there also this touch of um, homosexual fascination as a kind of doubling the, the, the Mrs. Danvers, Rebecca? Uh, per, what do you think about it? His friend Frank Crawley. Yeah. Yes. Um. And I, you know, um, I don't deal with him much in the book, and it, and I'm very selective because I'm like, oh, there's all that stuff going on with Maxim. Um. That's, you know, that's the investigative plot. But it, it's almost a, a romance when they, they're, they have a secret. You know, we think that Frank knows um, what really happened to Rebecca. They have a moment where uh, Maxim is going to say something to, um, to Frank and Frank tells him, you know, forget about it. I know it's okay. I understand, you know, that basically he's got away with murder. Um, and, and then they're in the car together. They're the couple that watches, you know, um, Manderley burning um, from a hill at the end, which is what happens in the book. So with the heterosexual couple with um, Maxim and, and I. So I do think it's set up sort of that kind of gentleman um, uh, relationship that is homosocial and perhaps homosexual. And in Du Maurier's oeuvre, there's a lot of interest in male protagonists. Um, and in some ways, I think Maxim, at least biographically, is more like her than either of the um, women 
or uh, any of the women, I should say, there's, you know, notably there are three, um, and, and even more if you count Beatrice. Um, so I think that it isn't campy, but it's um, structural in the way that the, the, the film um, kind of pairs them in a world that is changing um, away from the sort of, you know, Lord of the Manor uh, patriarchy that Maxim grew up in, but that is no longer prevalent or, you know, viable. Um, and that they can't find a place outside of Menderley either, you know, so they're kind of rootless and that the women really own that domestic space because it's, even if it's anachronistic, it's kind of where they've exercised their power. It's where they've um, critiqued um, patriarchal ownership and lineage. So I think there is a kind of gendered space um, that you could explore in that way that would be interesting and it would be appealing to Hitchcock too I think because he wanted to keep more of the film like in the kind of English countryside and make it less isolated and gothic um, and I think those uh, little moments of exchange with the many lovely British character actors um, in this you know city and in the plot um, of investigation where, where he appears, where he makes his um, cameo is uh, outside of phone booth, um, where George Saunders is, is um, as Jack Favell is uh, calling Danny. Um, you know, that, that part appealed to him and the Gothic is uh, realm I think would be. Maxim doesn't really have the standing in his ancestral home that he should. And I think it's very notable that he doesn't even appear in the upper floors of Manderley at all. He kind of stands at the bottom of the staircase <laughs> most of the time, kind of like, this is mine, but can't you know master any of its secrets or its history or, or its, its future. It's fascinating. And uh, I also wanted to ask, uh, slowly drawing to the end, uh, about your experience of teaching and uh, speaking about Hitchcock with younger viewers, because, you know, we are in 2021, uh, <laughs> unbelievably so, but yes. And, you know, so so pretty much, you know, in 20 or 19 years from now, we'll be celebrating the 100 years of Rebecca, even though it seems ridiculous, but it's uh, we're drawing slowly to, to that anniversary. And but but I wanted to ask about your experience of, um, you know, talking to students or, or young younger people born, let's say, around 2000 who, who, who are, uh, you know, approaching this film. And uh, what were your experiences of, of, of them? you know, encountering this, I think, a world that is so alien to their own experience and frame of reference. Yes, um, both in terms of just historically and in terms of gender. Um, well, Sebastian, you mentioned the, the complementarity of the book and the novel. So I do tend to teach them together. And it's really one of the few novels I continue to teach in uh, my film classes because it's such a good example of you know, immersiveness and then the immersiveness of the film and how that works. Um, so I did teach it this year. Um, and what I enjoy about it is, you know, everything about the Hollywood um, 
classical production values and good acting and, you know, world building captures them. So even if they come into a class saying they've never seen a black and white film, they're instantly there with these characters and, you know, they have their loves and hates and um, critiques. And so while they do find the heroine insufferable, <laughs> which um, I always am a little offended about because I'm like, but she's Joan Fontaine and she's so sweet and she's, you know, <laughs> they, 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 love the setup. They're really into the kink. Um, they're into, they're into the, how explicit the daddy stuff is. Um, they're into how defiant um, Rebecca is. And they're into the sort of deliciousness of Danders. I mean, they hate her, but they also don't hate her the way I feel like they used to when I taught the book, maybe 15 years ago, like they're much more into the, the villainy of queerness being a, kind of a pleasurable revenge. And so I, it's quite interesting how easy it is to teach. Um, and the book they find long, which everyone does. I mean, Hitchcock was like, how tedious is this book? Um, but it's so familiar to them. They, they instantly, um, talk about uh, Twilight um, or, you know, or a sort of fan fiction kind of world where these characters are very familiar and they also really, you know, they, they know their steampunk and their um, the horror worlds that, I mean, students will come in saying, but women are so powerful in horror. And I was like, wait, that isn't how it taught, you know, before. They're like, no, this is like horror where women get to be monsters. And I'm like, okay, that's a nice critical shift. So it's rewarding and they are judgmental, but I think that's also baked into the book mm -hmm. um, and, the, and the film too, where you're like meant to um, have an extreme reaction to Danvers, for example. And it helps that Laurence Olivier plays Maxim in the film. Mm -hmm. Because I think if he had been one of the Maxims that you see um, in the TV versions where they really are like old, <laughs> that it's less compelling. I have um, one question, which is purely on a, on a like this uh, cinephilic level, let's say, like on, on the level of a cinephile's experience. Because you, uh, your uh, conclusion of your analysis, you know, the way you analyze the last scenes is very powerful. But I think it's characteristic to all of the people who are writing about Rebecca that they somehow are not so much interested. And you write that the, the, the half an hour of this um, procedural game is kind of a dull, as you write it. And, and I agree. So I have this feeling that Rebe Rebecca, you know... Um, Let's say I feel I, I feel as a viewer that it's a great film, but I don't consider it a masterpiece because the the when they leave Manderley, you know it it flattens it, it, it but it, it has to right because you cannot sustain this kind of uh, visual ecstasy fetishism that is there in Manderley because you have a regular plot then. Do you think it's kind of a flaw of Rebecca? Um, because you know you, you write just just two pages about this this half an hour after after Max confesses um, so that's my question about you know what's left out of the of your narrative in this case uh, yes yeah, so I guess in that way it is sort of like a fan fan version like if we just 
<laughs> if we just can't, you know, had that business dealt with more quickly, um, it would be, um, I didn't, I didn't have a chance because of COVID to get deeply into the archive. I could just search for things that were identifiable in the finding aids and that the archivists could kind of identify with. So it's unclear to me whether the um, mechanics of that were a choice of Hitchcock to have some, you know, kind of forward momentum of the plot or to have, you know, stuff happen, or maybe Selznick who was so devoted to the book. But it does, it, I think it's important ideologically that the law is um, on Maxim's side in a way that really, I don't think Hitchcock would even <laughs> like, you know, it, it makes it, it, it is really awful that he can get away with this. Um, so I think that that's very important. The, um, the return to Manderley at the end, which feels to me unsatisfying in some ways, although very beautifully executed, and it returns us to the world of, as you said, you know, the, the kind of mise-en-scene that is so appealing. Um, by watching Danvers kind of travel through the house and then um, meet her death. That is the open-endedness of the film to me because it doesn't return to the voiceover and kind of is not able to integrate that whole investigative plot into a satisfying ending is part of the enduringness of the film because it can't figure out how to resolve everything that it's raised. And that is the classic uh, Gothic scenario. I think it's perfect uh, for us to end on this note of ambiguity because the ambiguity remains there. And I think we can feel it every time we uh, watch uh, Rebecca and uh, we are confronted with just ultimately unresolved many of the tensions that the film creates. Uh, uh, creates are, but they they remain uh, they they remain so powerful and they retain uh, their their power for hopefully future generations uh, that will be guided also by your wonderful study. So thank you so much for for the book and thank you again for for appearing on this on this podcast. Thank you so much. The pleasure is mine, and there's obviously so much more to say. So <laughs> I look forward to the rest of your podcast. It was a fantastic opportunity to talk to Professor White, and I, I, I feel like rewatching Rebecca again on a Criterion disc that I recently uh, purchased. Um, I guess this is a movie, one of those Hitchcock movies like Vertigo, that you can really revisit many times. Uh, exactly, and uh, the way you change, the movie also changes with you. So for me, revisiting Rebecca was a unique experience. I also wanted to add, because I didn't have time uh, in our conversation, that my grandmother, uh, may, he, may she rest in peace, that was her favorite movie. So, you know, uh, and it was actually maybe many grandmothers' favorite movie. This movie has something like that in it. It's a, it's a cult movie, probably the first really cult classic that Hitchcock made that has this appeal uh, and that really takes people back in time and place. So I would like to remember about my grandmother when we uh, are discussing Rebecca. 
Well, uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode and we always encourage you to check out other episodes, to check out our Facebook page, Foreign Correspondence Deeper into Hitchcock and please share the episodes. We are really crafting them with love and devotion to Mr. Hitchcock and we can also say, and that's another uh, exciting episode that's coming up because the next episode will be Foreign Correspondence, so the very movie that gave the title to our uh, to our podcast and a movie that I really uh, always enjoy. So next time we will be still in the year 1940, but in a more, let's say, picaresque, adventurous mode with, with Joel Magria and others in Foreign Correspondence. So thank you so much for listening uh, to our podcast, Foreign Correspondence. Deeper into Hitchcock.